Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Thomas, for helping with my tech needs. Good evening. Good evening. Um, as I said at the beginning, my name is Tom. I'm one of the curates here. I am acutely aware of the heat and the temperature tonight. So I'm going to promise I'm not going to go on too long and I'm not going to be boring. You can hold me to account to that at the end. Um, uh, and I'd love us to work together with this passage because I think there's real gold here, actually. This is really exciting piece of scripture that we can look, look at together. So let's work together, let's get into this text and let's see the power of God at work through it. Now before I, um, before I go into this tonight, I need to share with you my um, the experience of my journey to school with my seven-year-old daughter on Friday, Friday morning. It all started so well, everything was sorted. It was one of those extremely rare occasions when you know the breakfast had been eaten um, the school uniform was on, the teeth were brushed, the bag was packed with all the right things, and we were ready in plenty of time. It was a lovely day outside, so we walked together to school, just Jessica and me, kind of holding hands, lovely father-daughter time. It was really, really wonderful. And we headed out, and we got about halfway there, and Jessica turned to me and said to me, um, Daddy, why is that girl over there not wearing school uniform? Uh, I had no idea, so I kind of just brushed it off and said, oh, she's probably, you know, got a school trip or something, carry on, walk a bit further. Still, not in any particular rush. We get into the park, there's a load of kids playing football, and she turns to me and goes, Daddy, why are none of those boys wearing school uniform? I was like, I was a bit less sure, but I was like, why, maybe they've got a sports day or like a football tournament or something. So we carry on across the park, we're at the school gate now, and surrounded by other children and parents, and Jessica turns to me and says, Daddy, why is no one else wearing school uniform? <laughs> With panic rapidly engulfing me, I did the thing that any good dad does in, sit in that situation. I called mummy. <laughs> Phone rings, she says, hi, how are you? I say, um, we just got to school. No one else is wearing school uniform. Silence. Then the three words I knew were coming. It's Mufti Day. It's Mufti Day. We were living in literally every child's worst nightmare, uh, being the only kid in the school to turn up in uniform on Mufti Day. My poor daughter, I was terrified for her. She was going to feel humiliated. She was going to be judged. She was going to be let down by her awful parents. She was going to be an outsider in her own school. Now, thankfully, that was just my own hysterical inner monologue uh, because she actually thought none of those things. She found it actually pretty hilarious and um, an emergency delivery of mufty clothes by mummy a few minutes later sorted everything out and all was well. What a relief. But for just a moment, it gave me a sense of what it would be like to be an outsider, to be the only one not included, the only one who didn't get the message, the only one on the outside. I wonder tonight how many of us have felt like that. Have you ever felt on the outside of something? Everyone else gets the joke, you miss out on the good jobs, the cool people, the in crowd. Everyone seems like they feel at home apart from you. Well, tonight, the good news is I'm going to suggest that you don't just have a home, but you have a crowd, and you also have a calling. 
So as we look at this story together from the early church in Acts, I'm going to tell you why I think that's true. We arrive in this passage in the early days of the church. You know, if you've been part of this Acts series, we've been tracing the journey of the early church. Generally, things have been going well. It's been a few bumps in the road. We've heard about those over the past couple of weeks. But the church is growing every day. It's getting bigger every day. And the Christians are living out the gospel message. But we land with a bit of a bump here. I don't know if you noticed it in the reading. And we get the first glimpse of real proper kind of like dividing lines appearing in the church. So what is going on? Well, on the face of it, this seems like a disagreement about who is getting enough food. Now, try not to be distracted by that picture of some delicious pie. Um, I just typed pie into Unsplash, and that's what came up. Um, But if you've ever been in my household at dinner time, you'll probably know what it's like to have a dispute about food. Um, my two oldest children regularly argue who got like a millimetre more of pie. Um, it, it might be invisible to the naked eye, but trust me, a seven-year-old has a superpower to see that the other one got a minute amount more than them. I swear one day she's going to get like the kitchen scales out and kind of weigh, weigh them just to compare. But here, there's a little bit more going on than like Cheesecake Wars or something like that. Yes, on the surface, the tension was about who was getting food. But actually, underneath it, there's something much deeper and actually quite troubling going on. And to get to this, we need to know that the church at this point was basically made up of two groups. And they were kind of divided by language. So you had had two groups of Jews. Some of them spoke Hebrew and then some of them spoke Greek. They were both, both groups were Jewish, They were Jewish by ancestry, by heritage. They were ethnically Jewish, but they spoke different languages and they were from very different cultures. It's not like a perfect analogy, but it's a little bit like English-speaking countries and Spanish-speaking countries, okay? We have a lot in common. Our outlooks are pretty similar, but actually we live quite differently. You know, in Spanish-speaking countries, um, your main meal would be in the middle of the day and you'd have a sleep after lunch, and then you'd work kind of later into the evening. In English-speaking countries, we have like a light lunch, and then we work till five, and then we have like a main meal and have kind of like a, a longer evening. So with these groups here in this text, it wasn't so much about the language they spoke, it was more about the kind of culture, their practices, their assumptions that were very different. And we read, don't we, that the Greek speakers here aren't happy. They complain to the they come to church leaders and they complain and they say that their community, people in their community, weren't being provided for. Because one of the things that the early church did really well was actually they, they looked after people who had no income. So widows and orphans and people who had no way of getting money, the church looked after them and, and provided for them. But what was going on here, the suggestion is that when it came to how this was given out, how this food and money and housing was given out, the Hebrew speakers were being given preferential treatment over the Greek speakers. Now, just for a minute, have a think about how that might have played out. The leaders of the church were the 12 disciples, basically the original 12 disciples that Jesus chose, apart from Judas, who'd been replaced. And they were all Hebrew speakers, okay? So it would be natural for them, even without realising to prioritise the other Hebrew speakers through their own shared values and their customs and their assumptions. 
So even if there was no kind of conscious discrimination going on, which the text doesn't really tell us either way, it's easy to see how the Greek speakers could have felt like outsiders, like second-class Christians. And this is really important because it tells us that this wasn't about food, this wasn't about money, this was about equal value in Jesus. Now, this might bring some uncomfortable echoes for us. Think of the conversations that we've been having as a national church over the past couple of years about inclusion, about equality, about value, about diversity. You know, as human beings, we've all fallen short of God's standard, haven't we? And we all, um, even though it's not deliberate, we all have our prejudices based, that could be based on class, ethnicity, sex, maybe accent or, or background. We all do it subconsciously, don't we? And if that has been your experience of any church, not just necessarily HTC, but generally, if that has been your experience of church, I just want to apologise to you tonight. If you've ever been made to feel like an outsider, someone that no one talks to, someone who's not in the in crowd, you're not consulted, you're not asked to serve, you're not valued and you're not loved, I want to say sorry to you tonight. I want to repent of my own prejudices and my own broken attitudes and I want to ask for your forgiveness on that if I've personally ever got this wrong. You know, one of our church values is about being a loving and generous community. Our desire, our aspiration, our aim is that everyone here is known and loved. So how then do we get there? How do we bridge the gap? What's the solution? Well, let's come back to the passage to see what the leaders did. And on the face of it, it doesn't sound like they made a particularly good start. Have a look at what they say. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God to wait on tables. Ish. It sounds, doesn't sound good, does it? It sounds like there's a bit of ego going on there. You can almost imagine Peter, you know, Apostle Peter turning to Apostle John and saying, me? Jesus' favourite disciple, the one he called the rock, before Dwayne Johnson was around, he was the original rock, wasn't he? Why should I get my hands dirty? I'm not a waiter, I'm a preacher. This kind of work is beneath me. Let's find some, you know, minions or somebody to kind of do some work on our behalf. So, here is where we need to read the text really carefully because actually, he's not saying that at all. Let me explain. You see, in this sentence, that sentence on the screen, the the writer Luke, the person that's writing this book, he uses the same word here for preaching as he does about providing, okay? The text literally, I'm going to put the literal translation, this is how it should read. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God for the ministry of tables. Ministry. Both of these things are ministries. One is not better than the other. The church needs both. Harry Kane. Woo! Bit of whooping from the one Spurs fan at the front. Um, he is a brilliant striker, England captain, scores loads of goals, doesn't he? Bit of a hero in the Euros last year. And he's almost become the record England goal scorer. 
But if the England team was made up of 11 Harry Canes, I think they'd be pretty awful, wouldn't they? There would be no Jordan Pickford to save the penalties. There'd be no Declan Rice in the middle of the pitch to win the ball back. And there'd be no Raheem Sterling to cross the ball for Kane to score. But just because those players don't score as many goals as Harry Kane doesn't mean they're any less important. And it's the same in the church. We need ministers of the word, but we also need ministers of tables. We need ministers of welcome and ministers of coffee. We need ministers of prayer and ministers of care. We need ministers of administration, ministers of of conversation, ministers of sound, ministers of lyrics, ministers of video, ministers of drums. We needed a minister of drums tonight, didn't we, Thomas? Come forward if you were a minister of drums. We'd love to hear from you. None of these things, hear me, none of these things is more important than the other. This isn't about hierarchies. This is about calling. One of the greatest mistakes I think we can make as the church is to call everything that goes on up front, behind this kind of step line here, everything that goes on up here is ministry and everything that goes on out there is volunteering. That is not true and that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what this text tells us. We are all ministers of the gospel. And that's why I love what we do here at Holy Trinity, particularly at the six. And we, we, part of our value is to get everybody involved, everybody serving, everybody ministering in different ways. That's why I love the disciples' response in this passage. They don't say, we're the important ones, the real leaders, therefore we need to take responsibility for this other area as well. This, you know, minister of tables, we need to do that. No, 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 they don't do that at all. They, they recognise the limits of their own ministry, which is teaching, and they appoint people who are called to a ministry of tables, ministry of provision. Now, here's where we get to the really good bit. So let's pay attention particularly to what happens next. Take a closer look at who the disciples appoint to be these new kind of ministers. It says in the text, they chose uh, Stephen, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, I'm terrible with these names, but Timon, oh, you said Timon, I feel like I'm someone from The Lion King, but <laughs> T- Timon, Timon, oh, whatever, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch. Um, the important thing is, not that I can't pronounce their names, the important thing is these are all Greek names, so what does that tell us? The disciples want the community to be united. They want to heal divisions. They want everyone to be known and loved. So what do they do? They don't choose more people like them, more Hebrew speakers, more people from the in crowd, more of their mates. They choose people. They deliberately choose to elevate people from the community who felt like they'd been overlooked. Isn't that wonderful? They're saying to the Greek speakers, we hear you. We see you, we value you, we love you. And this wasn't a token gesture. They give them real authority. Look at what happens in the next verse. It says, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. This is a hugely symbolic act. The apostles are saying over these ministers of tables, 
What you are doing is just as important as what we are doing. And we give you the same authority in the name of Jesus. You know, when I was ordained, I kneeled in front of the bishop. Look, I've even got a picture. I kneeled in front of the bishop and she placed her hands on my head and commissioned me for the work of a priest. I'll be honest, it was an amazing, profound moment. Being empowered by the church for God's work. But what this text is telling us is that this shouldn't just be for professional ministers. It should be for every Christian because we're all ministers. Now, maybe you disqualify yourself. You say, well, that can't be me. I'm not a minister. I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not wise enough. I'm not in the in crowd. Well, have a look about, have a look at how Jesus chose his ministers. I love Mike Pellavarchi on this. He highlights how in the, in, in the time of Jesus, when like the convention was for the rabbi to go out and choose the best of the best, Jesus did the exact opposite. He says, when Rabbi Jesus chose his disciples, it appears that he went for the worst of the worst. Mike Pilavachi says, he goes on to say, there was Peter who kept saying the wrong thing. James and John who were vengeful and violent, you know, like calling down thunder and lightning and fire on villages who wouldn't repent. There was Simon who was a terrorist. There was Matthew who was a thief and a traitor. There was Thomas who was negative and doubtful. They were the biggest bunch of misfits and outsiders going. And yet here they are in this very passage today, these same 12 disciples heading up this flourishing church. What's the difference? Jesus. Friends, none of us is good enough. None of us is qualified. We all stuff up regularly. You know, I shared a silly example from Friday at the beginning, didn't I? But actually, it goes way beyond that. I've, I do far worse things every day. But because Jesus has gone before me, because he's gone to the cross, because he's taken me there with him, because he has died to defeat all my mess-ups and risen again in glory, and because he has filled me with his Holy Spirit, he calls me to join in his saving work. And exactly the same thing applies to you to each of you today. This is not about being the brightest and the best. This is not about being in the in crowd. This is not about being qualified. This is about being called. Later on in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ministry isn't for the special people at the front, the professional people with superpowers. It's for insiders and outsiders. It's for people of every background, every ethnicity, and from both sexes. 
If you are a Christian, then Jesus wants to use you. This isn't about being qualified. This is about being called. So I want to reassure you tonight that however many exams you failed, whatever language you speak, whether you've never been part of the in crowd before, even if you've been marginalised and passed over, especially if you've been marginalised and passed over, God says to you tonight, I hear you, I see you, I value you, I love you. And more than that, the church needs you. So I want to invite you tonight, as I finish, to be commissioned for ministry. Whether it's a ministry of snacks, ministry of kindness, ministry of prayer, ministry of hosting, ministry of administration, playing the drums, ministry of preaching, doesn't matter what it is, you are all called to be a minister of Jesus Christ. Not because you're good enough. Not because you're holy enough. Not because you're qualified. But because you're called. Amen. Richard.